Would you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37? Genesis, chapter 37. And in your bulletin, there's an outline so that you can follow along. I just want to say a couple of announcements before we begin. Um, we're going to have a church barbecue in a couple of weeks. I've, I'm looking for any help. Anybody would like to offer any uh, um, plates that you would like to, to make, any special dishes. We're going to have uh, some missionaries here. And um, I'm just uh, excited about them, them coming. But I do need to hear from some people about what you would like to bring. So far, I have two people that have said, okay, this is what I'll bring. Uh, the church is taking care of the main dish, so if you would bring a side dish, that would be really appreciated. The other thing is um, there's a women's breakfast on the 29th, and there's a sign-up board in the back. And just one quick announcement, uh, we're taking donations, and uh, and um, we're collecting socks and mis- mis- miscellaneous items for the soldiers. And uh, if you would like to participate in that, please see Darlene. They need our gifts, basically. And if you don't want to buy it, just any contribution would be humbly accepted. They, uh, I talked with uh, uh, Marine yesterday, and uh, he was telling me how uh, they uh, sometimes go weeks without being able to get to the BX and how they would really appreciate when they get the care packages. And it doesn't even have to be from somebody they know. <laughs> They're just excited to get something and, and some socks. And we're taking a, a collection in the back. And does anybody know what Semper Fi means? Always faithful. Amen. So if you, if you can, if you're willing, to uh, please see Darlene. And, uh, and that would be a, a great blessing, not just for our church, but also for the soldiers that are there, uh, sacrificing, serving, and being selfless. So uh, with that, just uh, a little reminder. Okay. I think that's pretty much it. Genesis chapter 37. The title of my message today is The Undisciplined Family. The Undisciplined Family. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 11. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a varied colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He told, he said to them, please listen to this dream, which I have had for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheave rose up and also stood erect and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 
He related it to his, bro- his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Father, I pray that you would help us right now. Help us to be still and to know that you are God. I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to your word. And I pray that you would help us to have open ears and hearts this morning. Speak to us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible is full of wonderful stories, such as Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac, David and his battle with Goliath, uh, Samson and his amazing strength and his long hair, Jonah and the fish, Elijah and the uh, uh, showdown at OK Corral, Ruth and her marriage to Boaz, and one of my favorites, Daniel and the lion's den. They're unforgettable. I've been thinking about these stories and I realize that biographies are a powerful method to teach truth. As I've been studying Joseph for the last six months in my personal life, I couldn't stop thinking about him. I was excited. I would come home and just open my Bible and was it was amazing. It was so interesting how much there is there. And the more I studied, the more I saw a lot of practical application. There was, comp- there was favoritism. There's competition. There's jealousy. There's passivity. There's lust. And uh, we're going to talk about dealing with desperate housewives next week. There's temptation. There's disappointment. There's deception. There's serving even while in prison. There's forgiveness. Joseph goes from the pit to the prison all the way up to the palace. It's an interesting story. There's 14 chapters devoted to Joseph. And whenever God lingers that long, let me tell you, he has something to say. What's even more amazing to me was during and through it all, the presence of God with Joseph. And not just the presence, but the peace of God and the power of God. But that's another message. We'll talk about that one later. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Put, put something there in Genesis. But I just want to show you something. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 and then 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to be looking at these for a minute. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. If you have the NIV, it might say, in the past. Or what, what does the King James say? Uh, aforementioned, aforetime, aforetime. What that is a reference to is a reference to the Old Testament. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, cross out that word and put O-T. Let's read it like that. 
For whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans tells us that there are two main reasons for studying the Old Testament. One, for learning or instruction. And two, for hope. God wants to give us instruction about life. And he wants to give us encouragement about the future. Hope always points to the future. So we have present day instruction and future hope. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, verse 6. It says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. These things that are, are being referred to, or these things that happened, refers to the first five verses in that ch- chapter. It's talking about the people of Israel as they were going through the wilderness. And some of these references are to Exodus and uh, Numbers and, and uh, um, Numbers. Okay, yeah, Exodus and Numbers. And why was they written? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction. Stop right there. They were written for our instruction. If you have the King James, it might say admonition. That's the word for instruction. The Greek word is nuthesia. Nous meaning mind. And thesia means to put something in or on. Literally, it means to put something in the mind. There's a verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but rather bring them up in the Training and admonition or instruction of the Lord. So God has given us Old Testament truths. One, to instruct us. Two, to give us hope. And three, to warn us not to crave evil things. Now let's have a little bit of historical background before we begin. Joseph was one of 12 sons born to Jacob. And Joseph had some of the worst trials and difficulties, ad- adversity. But through it all, he maintained his faith. He is never a part of the problem. He's always a part of the solution. Joseph is a rare person. And he's a youth. He's only 17 years of age. I'm impressed by that. He maintained his faith through all this adversity. Now, Joseph's father, does anybody know his name? Jacob, does anybody know what his name means? Deceiver, it means trickster. <laughs> Why is that? That was his nature. Jacob was, was a trickster. Remember when he tricked his father Isaac to be his hairy brother Esau? And he stole his brother's birthright. Remember that? Well, how do you think Esau took that? Pretty bad. He wanted to kill him. In Genesis 27, 41, don't turn to it. It just says that Esau hated Jacob so much that he wanted to kill him. But out of respect for his father, he waited for his father to die. <laughs> that was nice. He's going to wait for his dad to die. Then I'll kill my brother. So as a result, Jacob had to put it in B for boogie. He had to flee to go visit his uncle Laban. 
And what I learned from that is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. He had to leave his family. He had to leave his home. And I realized he never got to see his mother again. Sin has consequences. Then, now we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. Jacob goes on a trip to go see Uncle Laban. And as he's on this trip, Genesis chapter 29, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Joseph not Joseph, Jacob meets Rachel and this is amore. It's his love at first sight. He sees her and he's twitterpated. He's smitten. And he, he falls in love. And then he wants Rachel. He wants to marry her. And it says, verse 18. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Wow, that's real love right there. When Seven years and it only seems like a few days? That's love. Real love. And they make a deal. Laban says, I'll give her to you. You know, you work for me seven years. It's it's done. And Jacob's all excited. And for him, it only seemed like a few days. He's going to marry this woman that he fell in love with. But then something happened. Laban pulls a fast one. He tricked Jacob. Look at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, that means it was dark, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me. <laughs> Laban deceived Jacob. Now, Jacob, what's his name mean? Deceiver. He got deceived by his uncle Laban. Laban, might, uh, Jacob might have been a deceiver, but he had nothing on, on Laban. And he tricked him. He switched daughters. Laban switched daughters, and he ended up marrying Leah. So he got... he. he he pulled the rug out from under him. And can you imagine your shock when you wake up in the morning and you're thinking it's your this woman that you love that you and then you like Who's that? Leah, this is that homely girl. I didn't marry her. So then they made a deal. And basically, uh Laban says, Look, stay with me for another seven years and uh and you can have Rachel too. So he got a two for one. <laughs> Fourteen years, basically, he had to work for, for Rachel. I, he, he got, you talk about got 
Woo, man. That was, that was a fast one. Basically, in, in, wrapping, in, 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 in wrapping this up, I just want to tell you that Jacob ended up having 12 sons. It's in Genesis 35. You don't have to turn to it. But in Genesis 35, verse 23, it tells us the 12 sons that he has. He has six. Well, I'm back up. Four separate women bore his children. Four. Six came from Leah, and she had a daughter named Dinah, too. Two came from Rachel, two came from Bilhah, and two came from Zilpah. So that's a total of 12. And these 12 sons make the tribe of Judah. Okay? Now, we're all on the same page? All right. I, just, I, I say all that just to kind of bring this. Okay, now, now I can start the message. I'll give you a little background. Now, my first point. The family's adversity. Number one. The family's adversity. What is adversity? It's a state of hardship, misfortune, affliction. Jacob's family had much adversity. What was the first adversity? Look at chapter 29, verse 30. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Here's the first adversity, the competition of the women. Leah, she basically feels unloved. And so there's a rivalry now going on. And in verse 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. Remember that. For she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Oh, that's kind of sad. 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. So Reuben, because he saw her affliction. Simeon, because the Lord saw that she was unloved. Thirdly. 34, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now, if you're keeping score, the score is four to zero. Rachel doesn't have any children. And what did she do? Well, look at chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die! Oh, man! Why, Why was she so emphatic about it? It's because it was a huge embarrassment to not have children in the Jewish culture. To be barren was embarrassing it was a disgrace it was a stigma not not to have any children back then and so she's she's telling her husband i want children give me children she already has four i don't have any and then as we see jacob gets mad says hey i'm not in the place of god what do you think you know he gets mad he kind of gives it back and then he even said in anger Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? 
So then Rachel comes up with an idea. I got it. I got my, my maid. And look at verse 4. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. That's a good name. If anybody ever thinking of naming a child, that's a great name. Dan, Daniel, something like that. Verse 7, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. She named him Neptali. So now she figured out a way to have two children. She says, yes, now the score is four to two. Well, Leah saw that and she says, you know what? I can play that game. So then verse 9, Leah saw that she had been stopped bearing. She took her maid Zilpah and she gave her. Her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. <laughs> now it scores six to two. See the competition going on here? And did you notice in verse eight, Rachel says with much or great wrestlings, wrestling, there's wrestling going on I mean, between these families. There's competition. Have you ever watched that wrestling when those guys run against the, the thing, they bounce back and they knock each other over? It's all fake. <laughs> so then there's this wrestling, but basically this becomes a baby-bearing competition. And, and, and each one's trying to, to, to get more children. There's adversity going on, and they're thinking that by having more children, Jacob will love her. Leah's really feeling unloved. You can tell that by the name of her children. And so it just it's, there's this, this rivalry going on. And even now the maids are involved in it. And, and, it's, and it's, 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 it's difficult for these two sisters. They're clashing. Did you know that sisters can get competitive? Sisters can get competitive. I remember when uh, Becky was a little girl... She learned to ride her bicycle and she was all excited. We bought her this bicycle. She had learned, to, she was riding it without the training wheels and we were all excited. Yay, Becky. Yay. Go girl. Go girl. Well, a week later, her baby sister learned to ride the bicycle. We're, Yay, Jesse. Go girl. Go girl. Well, Becky got all mad. <laughs> Becky got, what? Uh, and, you know, and started pounding and getting mad at her sister for learning. They got competitive because Jesse stole Becky's thunder. And that's what's going on here. One has a baby and ah, yeah, yeah. And then the other one, oh, darn, you know, I got to have another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this, this stress, this, this ad- adversity going on. And then in verse 21, Leah has her son, uh, daughter. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and she named her Dinah. So now all these children are being born. And then finally, verse 22, Rachel's been praying. Rachel has been praying to God. And then in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my what? Reproach or shame. There it is. It was a it was a disgrace, a dishonor not to have children. So she feels God has Taken away my shame. And Joseph, oh, oh, then she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. Basically, his name means adding. She's 
saying that she named the son saying that the Lord will give me another. Joseph was an answer to prayer. And God blesses Rachel with a son. And she feels better now. But as an aside, I want to ask you this question. What did Jacob do to keep the peace in the family? Nothing. So that was the first adversity. Adversity number one, the competition of the women. Adversity number two in Genesis 34. Just a couple of pages over. Verses one and two. The second adversity hits. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, who had, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Sechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Sechem violated Dinah. This is Jacob's only daughter. And this is a horrific experience. This is a calamity for a woman to be violated by force. It was a terrible thing for Jake, for this to happen to their family. And then on top of that, the next adversity, the very next verse, um, I mean, chapter 35, verse 16. 35:16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth. And she suffered labor pain, severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Ani, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. This is the third tragedy that happens. Rachel dies giving birth to her second son, Ben-Ani, which means son of my sorrow or son of my trouble. And Jacob calls him Benjamin. This is a terrible tragedy because Jacob really loved Rachel. This is his beloved. He worked 14 years for her. And they waited many, many years to have children. And they finally have two children and she dies in childbirth. He's heartbroken. And he's still grieving. Jacob is still grieving over the death of his wife. And look at verse 22. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land, that's Jacob, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Reuben commits incest. The oldest son, Reuben, laid with his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is sad. Several tragedies hit this family. One, the competition of the women. Two, Sechem violates Dinah. Three, Rachel dies in childbirth. And four, Reuben commits incest. This family is going through some problems. Well, how does that apply to us today? What about the American family? I went on the internet and I was at the National Center for Health Statistics. Did you know that 43% of all marriages... End in divorce. 43%. 60% of all second marriages fail in divorce. 73% of all third marriages fail and end in divorce. You know what's funny is, it's not even funny, but at my job during lunchtime at noon, we all go into the lunchroom, and you know what we, what, what the, what, what's turned on? They watch divorce court. 
And we're, we're, we're in there just like, wow, man, that's some crazy stuff going on. And, uh, but that's what's, what's on TV at noontime. Four out of ten or 40 percent of all children will be raised in single family homes. Forty percent over the past 30 years, illegitimate births has shot up 400 percent. And the number of single family homes has tripled. What about the American family? Is it going through adversity? Oh, my goodness. You know what the teenage suicide rate is right now? It's gone up 300 percent teenage suicide. There are 1.8 million latchkey children. Do you know what a latchkey child is? It's a term that we use in my profession. It's when a child goes home with a key around their neck to an empty home. That's a latchkey child. 1.8. Did you know that 50% of couples today just live together? America calls it shacking up. But God calls it fornication and immorality in Galatians 5.19. 30% of all couples experience some type of domestic violence. 30%. That's one out of almost every three. Domestic violence is the highest unreported crime they estimate between 6 and 15 million women are battered every year. But they won't say anything. They don't want to report it. Did you know that 20% of all police officers are killed on domestic violence calls? 20%. Wow. The American family is going through adversity. Not just Jacob's family. And... Even Christian families are going through adversity. Just because you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you're immune. We are going through adversity. Over time, there's a natural drift toward isolation. It's, 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 you have children, you start buying a house, you start doing things, and it's just a natural drift. Uh, I remember when I first got married, you know, this was all new to me. I'd ask Eva, everything Okay. Everything all right? Yeah. What could be wrong? I said, okay, I'll see you later. I, I thought everything was good. I didn't know. You know, I, I speak a little Spanish. I speak a little German. But I don't speak womanese. And if your wife tells you that nothing's wrong, something's wrong. There's something wrong. And, and then we started having our struggles. Uh... I would say, come on, help me, go help me rake the leaves. You know, I'll rake half and you rake half. So I'd go out there and rake half the leaves. I'd go out there and the other half's still there. I said, what happened? I thought you were going to rake the leaves. She goes, my leaves are still on the tree. <laughs> we bumped heads several times, many times. Eva could have left me, many times. She could have left me, but I hid the luggage. <laughs> she couldn't go. But all kidding aside... Um, there are, there are many things that I've learned. I've been married almost 28 years next month. And I'm going to tell you, marriage is one of the hardest things you're going to go through as a man and a wife. And I didn't know anything. I was pretty dumb. And it was by reading books like this, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives by Dr. Dobson, or going to marriage conferences by Family Life that really ministered to me and my wife. Because you don't know. You make all the mistakes. And it really depends on how you're raised. 
One of the things I wrote down on from my book was 25% of husbands kiss their wives goodbye when they leave the home. However, 99% of the husbands kiss their house goodbye when they leave their wife. Wow. You know, it's just, it's just very difficult. Um, marriage is, 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 is something that God has, is an institution that God has blessed and wants us to succeed in. But I'm telling you, even as Christians, we need help. And by God, and by His power, you can do it. By God's strength, you can do it. If you're, holy, you're, you're listening to the Holy Spirit and you're in the Word, but if you're doing it on your own strength, you will fail. You will fall apart. It will crumble. I, I'm telling you, you can live a lie. You can pretend like everything's okay. You need God in your marriage. The cross. I was telling my children uh, the other day, it's, it's like a triangle. You have the husband and the wife at this end, and then you have God at the top. My friend Oscar told me this. And he said, the closer you get to God, what happens? The closer you get to one another. I'll never forget that. The, the American family is going through adversity. And we need God in our, in our family and in our homes. One of the things I learned from these books and through these conferences is that not to repay insult with insult. You know, when sometimes my wife would criticize something I do. My first reaction is, hey, you know, say something right back. Well, your food's nasty, you know. <laughs> I've learned, I've learned, I've learned. I've learned of the importance of communication because she would talk to me and tell me stuff and I'm pretending like I'm listening. Mm-hmm. I even learned a nod. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. But I don't know how she knew my mind was somewhere else. I don't know how. She, that, that woman's good. And she would say, are you listening to me? Or something like I ran over by a car. And I said, what? You know, I was like, she knew. I wasn't paying attention. She knew it. And so I had to look, give her eye contact. You know, I had to, <laughs> I've learned a little bit. I'm telling you, good marriages don't just happen. They are built. Good marriages are worked on. And it takes, it takes both couples both people respecting one another and, 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 and working at it. It's not easy. I'll tell you what is easy. It's easy to give up. It's easy to throw it away. That's easy. Everybody has problems. I was at work on Monday, and a, uh, they called me, Danny, uh, a, a family wants to come talk. Can you come talk to them? Sure. Come out, and this, little, this 14-year-old girl crying. <laughs> What's the matter, Mihai? What's wrong? I don't want to live at home no more. I can't stand living at home. It's like, Mom, what's happening? What's going on? They're fighting. Mom and the, and the, the 14-year-old girl, she, you know, and then she left out some facts like that she didn't spend the night at home, you know, little things like that. And, uh, it's just crazy. Um, families are going through problems. Families are going through adversity, especially in this country. One of the highest divorce rates in, in, in the world. And what's the answer? It's Christ. You got to have Christ. So f- my first point. Is the family's adversity. My second point. Is the father's passivity. Turn to Genesis 34. 
Genesis 34. There's two, three things that really we want to talk about right here. First, Sechem violated Dinah. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Sechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Sechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get this woman, this young girl for, for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were in the life with worth the livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. So basically, what happened here? Basically, Sechem raped Dinah, his only daughter. And what was his response? Verse five. Look at what it says. When Jacob heard that his that he had defiled his daughter, his son were with the live his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent. He kept silent. He kept his peace. What was the brother's response when he when they found out? Verse 7. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. The, the brothers were angry. So what did they do? They devised a plan. They said, we got to get we got to do something. How can we get back? How can we get revenge? And in verse 14, it says, they said to them, they they wanted to intermarry. And they said, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. So they, they made this deal. Okay, you guys get circumcised and then we can all get married together. And so what happened? All the men got circumcised. All of them. And then here it comes. Verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when... They were in pain that two Dinah's brothers, the two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. And they killed Hamar and his son Sechem with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Sechem's house and went forth. Jacob's son came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. Then they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their loved ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. That's what they did. They plundered and they looted the city. But first they killed all the men. And what did Jacob say as a result of all of this? What was Jacob's response? Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the lands, among the Canaanites and the Parasites, and my men being few in number. And they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed. And I am my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Jacob didn't do anything. When Jacob heard what his sons had done to retaliate, he was more concerned about his public relations with the people living in the land. He was hardly concerned with the indignity done to his daughter. 
He didn't do anything. Now look at chapter 35, verse 22. The father's passivity regarding Reuben. And it came while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Jacob didn't do nothing. You said, well, maybe he didn't know. It says Israel heard of it and he did nothing. He didn't do any, no discipline, no correction, no reproof. Jacob heard of it. Now, I have to explain something to you. Reuben was the firstborn, the firstborn son. He was the oldest. And because he was the oldest, there was a, uh, he got a privilege. He got a double portion of the inheritance. When you read Luke 15 about the prodigal son, there's two sons, right? The oldest son, when the father dies, would get a double portion. And the second son, would he get the third? He'd get one third. So that the firstborn always got a double portion. We'll learn about that later. And then not only did he receive a double portion, but he received authority over the family. He became like the next leader. Okay? So if if, uh, anything happened to the father, Reuben would be in charge. Well, Reuben thought he would inherit his father's concubine. And he took her and he laid with her. But it it was premature. He had no right to do that. It was a sign of deep disrespect to take his father's concubine and lay with her. Now turn to Genesis 49. Keep, keep your finger in 37. Turn to Genesis 49. Jacob is on his deathbed. He's dying. Genesis 49 and verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. And here's where he starts with the oldest. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrollable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Unstable as water. What is he saying? What is Jacob saying? Basically, he said, Reuben, you're wild and reckless. Because why? Because you defiled my couch. Did Jacob know his sons? Yes. Look at verse 6. Or verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Whoa! What's this a reference to? The mayhem that they committed at Sechem. In their anger they slew men. But Jacob did not rebuke Simeon and Levi for their savage behavior. Jacob didn't confront the rape with Dinah or the incest with Reuben. Where was Jacob? Why didn't he deal with it? He didn't deal with with it because he was passive. He was just passive. Parents, let me tell you something, or you who are going to be parents, you don't have to be perfect, but please do not be passive. Don't be passive. Jacob is the classic example of a preoccupied father who's too busy for his family, unconcerned. He's too passive to correct his son's wrongdoing. 
passivity ruins our churches, ruins our homes, and it ruins our country. I was at Costco a couple months ago and I ran into some old friends and they were telling me how their son is smoking marijuana and getting drunk at home in the house. And I forgot what aisle we're on near the near some jumper cable stuff and all that. And I said, what are you doing? They said, oh, no, no, nothing, nothing. I can't sleep at night, you know, because I'm worried he's going to burn the house down. And I said, oh, Lord, I said, either get him in counseling or kick him out. Get rid of that boy. I know that sounds like tough love, but he is history. You got to respect your father's house. You living there and getting high and getting drunk and not and not respecting his parents' wishes, kick him out. The, but the parents are passive. They'd rather put up with that. Too busy. Men are to be the spiritual leaders of the home. Dads are to be the role models. And what happened? Isaac pampered Esau. Eli failed to discipline his sons. And David pampered Absalom. And... Uh, Dr. Dobson's book, Dare to Discipline. In the 1940s, the top problems in schools were talking in class, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls. I love that one. Cutting class and improper dress. The same group did research 40 years later and in the 80s. And the top 10 problems were drugs. I've caught kids with cocaine in the bathrooms, alcohol, teenage pregnancy, rape. I've caught kids assault with guns and knives, arson, bombings, and as you know, even murder in the schools. Discipline has gone out the window. Parenting is proactive. The purpose and our job as parents is to train our children and to give them direction, to teach them right from wrong, correct them, to discipline them, nutisia, to put something in the mind, instruct them. Don't be passive parents. It's terrible. It's terrible. When I go to the stores and I see kids running wild, it's like, oh, Lord. If you're going to have children, please, please correct them. Train them so they're not running all up and down the stores, climbing up the shelves and doing all this stuff. Screaming, having tantrums. I want to take my belt off. (laughs) So one, the the family's adversity. Two, the father's passivity. And three, the brother's jealousy. Genesis 37. Verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Verse 3 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more because he was the son of his old age. You know, maybe, be real fair, give, Jacob favored Joseph because he wasn't like his other sons. Maybe he wasn't all lustful and violent. Maybe he was easier to raise. You know, passive fathers tend to favor a child that's easier to raise. There's less stress. The others were harder. But what happened was, there was There was favoritism and Jacob didn't even try to hide it. Look at verse three. It says uh, he made him a very colored tunic Um, in the in the NIV. It says a richly ornamented robe. 
it's uh, the Hebrew word is ketanef, and it means a long coat with sleeves. It's a, it's a nice long jacket. Uh, sometimes you see guys wear these j- jackets and they go all the way down to the ankle. So Joseph had a nice Versace robe. It was just a nice, beautiful robe. Armani, if you like that one better. And so he, he was like just, just looking good. And to have a long-sleeved robe that went down to the ankles, that was a sign of nobility. It was... Uh, Basically made him stand out because the other 11 brothers, they had to wear the sleeveless tunics. But Joseph wore this sleeve tunic that went all the way to the ground and it was multicolored. It stood out, made him stand out. And when I had my friend Frank Salazar come to my house, he came over. He was wearing these overalls. I'll never forget. He was wearing these brown overalls. And it was like, he's, it's a man's job. He came into the house. Oh. Okay, where are we going to go? Yeah, all right. We're going to clean. All right. We're, we're, he, he was ready to work. And why do you wear overalls when you work? That kind of job. It's because you got movement. You see, if you're wearing a nice long mink jacket, can you work? Can you do anything? Would you hire, would you let somebody work with a mink jacket on in your company? No. But when you got that movement, you got those overalls. You can move those arms. You can break things. You can get around and get dirty. And that's what uh, J- Joseph's brothers had to wear. They had to wear the overalls. Basically, what Joseph, what Jacob said to Joseph was, Here, son, you wear this, and you won't have to work like your brothers. Oh, oh, oh. what did that create? Ooh, man. That's, it's called a hostile living environment. <laughs> you won't have to work. It created a bunch of sibling rivalry. And, and then, make matters worse, look at verse 2. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So Joseph tattletailed. He said, hey, these guys are sloughing. They're taking too many breaks. And then in verse 4, they, verse 4 it says, uh, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not even speak to him on friendly terms. Oh, boy, they really hated him. Can you imagine being at the dinner table? Hey, pass the salt. Get it yourself. You know, just, just hatred. Hatred. And then in verse... Uh, five, he has this dream and he tells it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And then again, we see that he tells them the dream. He says, my sheaves, my sheaves going to stand up and everybody's sheep is going to bow down and you guys are going to come and bow down. And what happened? Verse eight says, and then his, his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more. And then he still had another dream. Verse 9, he related to his brothers and said, Lo, I still have had another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and even eleven stars were bowing down to me. Man, this made everybody mad now because who's the sun? The father. Who's the moon? The mother. And who's the eleven stars? The brothers. It didn't take rocket science to figure that out. They knew exactly what his dream was. (laughs) And his, verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept it in mind. As an aside, what did Joseph do, Jacob do to keep the peace with his sons? Nothing. Nothing. They had some serious hatred. So basically, they're out taking care of the sheep. And they're about 40 miles away. And look at verse 18. Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. Basically, he's setting them up. He is setting them up. And then it says in verse 18, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, 
They plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Whoa. What? How? My question, first of all, is how did they spot him? How did they know it was him from a distance? How could they tell it was Joseph? The multicolored coat. He stood out. He had his Versace on. He stood out. They knew it was him. Oh, <laughs> they said, oh, yeah. They hate him so much, they plot to kill him. And, and uh, notice they don't say, here comes our little brother. Here comes that dreamer. That dream. That word in the Greek, in the Hebrew, shalom, means master of dreams. I wrote that down in your notes. It means dream experts. Were they saying this nicely? Here comes that master of dreams. No, they were being sarcastic. They're, here comes that dream expert. We'll see about his dreams. So they come up with this plan to uh, put him in the, in the pit. In verse uh, 20, Now then, come, let us take, kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what be, will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of the tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. What happened when Joseph got there? They stripped him of the robe. What does that say? What does that mean? Does that tell you anything? Yeah. Give me that robe, Joseph. And they took it off. And then in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites were coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy's not here. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Sir Walter Scott wrote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. That's what these guys did. They poured blood on the richly colored tunic. What a cruel trick. What are they doing? They're deceiving their father. They're deceiving him. But you know what? Just in the same way that Jacob deceived Isaac, these boys now are deceiving their father, Jacob. Just like Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be mocked. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. 
And look how, what a bunch of hypocrites. It says they comforted their father. What a bunch of hypocrites. They're the ones that deceived him. I want to ask you something. The brothers really aren't angry with Joseph. They're not even really angry at the tunic. Who are they really angry with? Their father. They're angry with dad. Where were you, Jacob, when, when Dinah was raped? Where were you, Jacob, when, when Reuben committed incest? Where were you, Jacob, when the women were competing? Where were you, Jacob, when Simeon and Levi massacred all the men? Where were you, Jacob? What were you doing? The favorite son is now the forgotten slave. And they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. What a price to pay for an undisciplined family. What a price. Jealousy set the stage for so many problems. And in 1 Samuel 18, Saul was jealous of David. When David killed Goliath and David was the hero, the people saying, David has killed his, uh, Saul has killed his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. And in verse 9 it says, And from that day on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Who are you eyeing? Who are you looking at? Maybe somebody has a better car, has a better house, a better cook, a better job. Maybe somebody has better hair, better clothes. Who are you eyeing today? Who are you looking at comparing yourself to? 1 John 3.12 says that Cain killed his brother Abel because his works were evil. And Cain's and his brothers were righteous. Jealousy is a terrible sin. It hurled Joseph into the pit. It parted Jacob and Esau. And it put Christ on trial. In Matthew 27, 18. Leonardo da Vinci, he was jealous of the accomplishments of Michelangelo. When you look at somebody who's a little bit more attractive, watch out, look out. Don't let jealousy creep up and sneak in. Shakespeare called it the green sickness. Another English poet says, it's a coal that comes hissing hot from hell. Solomon was right. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. In, first, in Solomon 8.6. You can become resentful of what God has given you. Or not given you. Be careful. So the three points today. The family's adversity. The father's passivity. And the brother's jealousy. In ending, I'm going to read you a story from this book by Dr. Dobson. It says, there was a 10-year-old boy named Robert, who was a patient of my good friend, Dr. William. Dr. William said his pediatric staff dreaded the days when Robert was scheduled for an office visit. He literally attacked the clinic, grabbing instruments and files and telephones. His passive mother could do little more than to shake her head in bewilderment. During one of the examinations, Dr. William observed severe cavities in Robert's teeth and knew the boy must be referred to a local dentist. But who would be given the honor? A referral like Robert could mean the end of a professional relationship. Dr. William eventually declined, decided to send him to an older dentist who reportedly understood children. The classic confrontation that followed now stands as one of the classic moments in the history of human conflict. Robert arrived in the dental office, prepared for battle. Get in the chair, young man, said the doctor. No chance, said the boy. Son, I told you to climb into the chair, and that's what I intend for you to do, said the dentist. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and then replied, If you make me get in that chair, I'm going to take off all my clothes. The dentist says calmly, 
Take them off, son. The, den- the boy f- immediately removed his shirt, his undershirt, shoes, socks, and then looked up in defiance. All right, son, now get in the chair. You didn't hear me. I said, if you make me sit in that chair, I'm going to take off all my clothes. Son, take them off, replied the dentist. Robert proceeded to remove his pants and shorts, finally standing totally naked before the dentist and his assistant. Now get in the chair, said the dentist. Robert did as he was told, sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. When the cavities were filled and drilled, he was instructed to step down from the chair. Give me my clothes now, said the boy. I'm sorry, said the dentist. Tell your mother, we're going to keep them in your clothes tonight. She can pick them up in the morning. (laughs) Can you comprehend the shock Robert's mother received when the door to the waiting room opened and there stood her pink son? As naked as the day he was born. The room was filled with patients, but Robert and his mom walked right past them and into the hall. They went down a public elevator and into the parking lot, ignoring the snickers of onlookers. The next day, Robert's mother returned to retrieve his clothes and asked to have a word with the dentist. (laughs) I bet she did. However, she did not come to protest. These were her sentiments. You don't know how much I appreciate what happened here yesterday. You see... Robert has been blackmailing me about his clothes for years. Whenever we're in a public place, such as a grocery store, he makes unreasonable demands of me. And if I don't immediately buy him what he wants, he threatens to take off all his clothes. You are the first person who has called his bluff, doctor. And the impact on Robert has been incredible. (laughs) I bet. Regardless of our family backgrounds, the Bible gives us practical instruction and warns us against favoritism, passivity, and jealousy. And what it tells us is the need for loving discipline and instruction. It, all, it also offers hope because Jacob, although he was passive, he was faithful. And God was faithful to Jacob, and Jacob ends well. In ending, there's three lessons we can learn if you turn to the back. Lesson number one, the decisions we make today affect our children and grandchildren. Jacob's mistakes had long-term effects, and passivity is our enemy. Lesson number two, all families have adversity. We must learn to be faithful regardless of your family situation. Joseph was focused on God and not on his brothers and parents. And thirdly, jealousy is a terrible sin, also known as the green sickness. But God can deliver us from this sin. Let us bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for bringing everyone here. And I thank you, God, for being with us during difficult times, troubled times. There are many people that are going through struggles right now here in this room. And even though whatever adversity is coming against us, I know, God, that you are able to deliver us from all our trials and adversities. I pray you speak to our hearts today. I pray that you would speak to to those who are seeking you, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, Amen.